Welcome to Skeptics, the show where we take a deep dive into the world of tech news and research. I'm Josh. And I'm Nayana. And we are back this week with more tech stories. Last week I had COVID. I'm feeling fine now. Thanks to people who messaged me, asked if I was okay. Yeah, we're back in the same room now, which is great. Yeah, which is really, really nice. Uh, And we've got an interesting mix of stories today as well. Josh, do you want to kick us off? That's right. I mean, later in the episode, we'll be covering the ongoing uh, issues around surrounding the humans of New York and its uh, other versions in India, as well as looking at new BBC impartiality guidelines. But first, we're looking at the latest data coming out of the European Commission as it relates to the Digital Services Act, which is something we've spoken about on the show uh, a few times now. Obviously, the EU is uh, trying to lead the way, really, in making tech companies as responsible as possible for the content that's put on their platforms. Uh, and this has taken the form of the Digital Services Act, which has kind of been rolling into gear over the last few months. And so this latest news concerns essentially a report card that's been um, delivered by uh, by the EU at the same time that a database has gone live for the reports of uh, sort of content removals, etc., to uh, to be put online. And guess who the uh, worst student in this class ding, is? Ding ding ding! Of course, it is X slash Twitter. Uh, the EU reports that it has a higher ratio, the highest ratio of dis- disformative posts compared to any of its large rivals. So uh, this news is just kind of rolling out now. But what, what, I mean, aside from being not very surprised, what was your sort of takes on, on this story? It's actually a bit depressing because I think there was a point where we would have said that Twitter slash X was actually making quite a concerted effort to tackle misinformation, especially in the wake of, um, you know, the elections, the January 6th riots, um, various kind of events that I think really did trigger Twitter into making like efforts towards this. We were just discussing just before we hit record on this podcast today that um, X is also scrapping the feature that lets users report misleading information, yeah. um, which is really concerning given, as we kind of mentioned before, the time of year that we're looking at and the fact that next year is a huge election year for so many countries across the world. Um, so as much as it's kind of not surprising for the state that X is in right now and for the new Musk-owned platform, it is actually, it does represent a really significant decline. Um, and weirdly, we seem to be getting back into a phase where Facebook slash Meta slash Mark Zuckerberg are kind of coming out again and again is more popular or like better in class kind of alternatives mm. to Twitter, which is certainly not how things were even one or two years ago. Um, what, what do you think is going to happen and what do you think this puts pressure on X or Elon Musk to do? Yeah, I think it's interesting. I mean, this isn't just a, a sudden departure, as we know. And as you said, you know, Twitter has been moving uh, away from responsible platform governance, at least in my mind, for, for several months now, at least since Musk yeah. took over. Um, but this specific um, kind of flashpoint arises from the fact that Twitter left the code of practice, which is a voluntary thing set up um, by the EU designed to help platforms essentially on-ramp onto uh, the new uh, DSA rules. So the fact that it's not in this code of practice means it hasn't been involved mm. in the kind of voluntary self-reporting uh, and uh, and information gathering that the, that the other platforms have done. And the EU is keen to make the point that this doesn't mean that uh, Twitter is off the hook. If anything, it's more in the crosshairs for its maybe lack of sufficient content moderation uh, as a result of the new rules, or at least the lack of reporting on that. And so this is sort of a downstream effect, really, the fact that, that Musk and Twitter has you know, has been very much on the sidelines of this kind of uh, this action. And we should remember that this is pretty serious business, at least if you take the European market seriously, mm. which I assume 
Musk does, as we know, the EU has massive powers to to fine and even potentially to ban um, platforms on the basis of not following these rules. And Musk has, Twitter has chosen the hard law approach. They haven't got involved in the voluntary standard setting. And that means that there may be uh, further consequences down the line. And I think it's just another, we talked last week about uh, the, the plans for Twitter to potentially charge its users. You know, a lot is changing right now uh, on the platform. And um, I think in the next few weeks, months, we're going to really start to, well, I've, as I said last week, I've already left myself, but mm-hmm. other people I think are going to start to think really, really carefully about their own future uh, on the app. But have you had any... Any changes of heart. I think the interesting thing about platforms like this is that it's it it really requires you um to take a moment to just sort of it's a bit like when you sign up for something and it's free and then but if you don't cancel within thirty days you just end up paying. Mm -hmm. And it's really annoying. Um I say this because that's literally what I've just done with something else completely. But you end up stuck in a kind of platform or tied to something because you haven't deliberately made this choice to leave and because you haven't taken the active effort to remove yourself from a platform. And I think Twitter slash X um, has sort of been having that. And now people are having that moment where they have to think really seriously about whether or not they want to stay. Um, Certainly for me, I think, I mean, we've talked about this before, maybe we will never come to a sort of conclusion on this, is that it's it's frustrating because as much as people say, I'm going to leave, I'm going to leave, it is still where I see people posting jobs mm. or it is still one of the ways in which people can get in touch with me quite easily without really the barrier of knowing my personal contact details, like mm. my email. Mm-hmm. And until something else does that, until we have a critical mass on other platforms, I don't really know that I can completely like take myself away from it. Mm. Um, which is frustrating because it's almost like we all need to agree collectively to stop tweeting. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it'll take that that sort of step on behalf of everyone, potential, you know, a, a significant amount of people to to do so. Um, and so, but what I think is really interesting about this new law, and I think what researchers mm. have been hoping for for a while uh, to come from the, these kinds of laws is a bit of transparency around exactly what um, platforms are doing. And this isn't just, you know, much as Musk goes on about freedom of speech and so on, this is also in some ways can be seen as safeguarding freedom of speech because platforms have the obligation to state their reasons for things that they have done, including removing content. And so the, I think the closer that platforms can hew to the to the European mm-hmm. guidelines on this um, will make it really, really significant. Yeah, I, I think it's definitely one of those situations at the moment where um, Elon Musk is just kind of a law unto himself, but surely mm. there has to be a place where that stops. And um, on the flip side, Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook have shown themselves fairly willing to at least not break the law. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's a bit of an open goal, I think, for uh, people like Zuckerberg and yeah. other leaders to look a bit more responsible by comparison. I know. We should also say the, this, the, the kind of highest obligations of these laws are targeted at the biggest platforms. That's That's by design. So it's not like every tiny website needs to do all this stuff but it does presume that there is both the uh capability and the willingness of platforms to play ball so in this sense x is a bit of a, a test of that so we'll mm. we'll see what, what we'll happens. see what happens as always with x okay so moving now to india where so many of our great stories come from this week uh, we're talking about humans of bombay um, you may or may not have seen the story, uh, listeners, on Twitter, but it's been quite big news in the, in the circuit of kind of Indian social media. So Humans of Bombay, as the name sort of implies, is a very similar photography platform to Humans of New York, which obviously 
I think for over a decade now has had quite a significant reach, mm. you know, platforming people and their their stories on the streets of New York. Humans of Bombay is a very, very similar um, photography platform, but unlike Humans of New York, is monetized. So the creators do actually make money from it, whereas Brandon Stanton, who runs Humans of New York, has never actually made money from the platform itself. He makes money via Patreon and the books he writes. Mm. Um, Humans of Bombay recently filed a claim against People of India, which is another very similar platform for copyright infringement in Delhi's high court. And this drew Brandon Stanton, the original founder of Humans of New York, um, out on on social media saying that he had forgiven humans of Bombay for a long time for essentially copying his work. He thought it was deeply hypocritical to um, for them to sue another platform. He accused the, the account of appropriation and criticized the double standard um, and essentially said, you can't be suing people for what I've forgiven you for. And that is a tweet that's been viewed over 4 million times. I was really interested in the story because of you know, the kind of digital storytelling element of all these platforms and the fact that Humans of New York is still going. I kind of never expected yeah. it to have this life. <laughs> yeah. Um, but also the fact that I follow a lot of people, obviously content creators and tech people and just general friends and family on Twitter in India. And and everyone is really, really delighted to see the downfall of Humans of Bombay. Really? <laughs> I'm really interested in um, the way in which it's it's not a kind of thing where people have come out being like, oh, but she, you know, poor Humans of Bombay. There's really a lot of support for Humans of New York here. Because there's a political element to this in mm. the Indian context as well, right? I think Humans of Bombay were seen as supporting the Modi campaign. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's that. And there's the fact that Karishma Mehta, who's the founder of Humans of Bombay, is herself quite a wealthy woman from a wealthy family who set up this platform, didn't like, has never explicitly said that it's based on Humans of New York, mm. New York, but obviously the name and the pl the format very much is similar. Um, and yeah, has made money off it. And um, I think people see that as something that's really, um, you know, is, is plagiarism, basically. Yeah, and this copyright um, question is, is something we're going to hear huge amounts more about in, yeah. in the coming months because, you know, obviously with this, this will, I think, seem like small fry compared to, compared to the AI um, mm. effects on copyright as well, where this could be happening, um, you know, very, very uh, frequently. Mm. Uh, but I think this is in some ways quite a good test case of this. And I suppose to, to state the case for, for humans of Bombay, their claim is not so much that uh, people of India have copied their idea it's mm. more that they've replicated quote a large number of images and videos on its platform again i you know we'll let the courts figure this out but that does still not really seem to be in the spirit of uh of, of, of these kind of services right like the, the the genius of it does seem to be the original idea which is we've heard from its creator yeah hasn't made any money from it per se so that's the sort of the claim from from the other side but this whole idea about who owns images um particularly when they're sort of curated in a certain way i think is yeah. is really tricky there's a pretty fine line i think with um platforms like humans of new york which i think the guy who founded that has done quite well thus far i, I, I have to say i have i don't like actively engage with it very much anymore and i haven't for a long time but humans of bombay has also received some criticism for the way it looks the gaze it uses to look at people mm. who are um like not very wealthy indian people or like people who live on the streets in india um typically you know humans of new york has had a good history in generating fundraisers and GoFundMes for yeah. people in that it profiles in specific scenarios where they need help. And I don't know if Humans of Bombay has done the same thing. The idea that the founder of it is getting a huge cut of this or that it's monetized, I think really changes the the way we think about the, the money element of it. And I think with your point about 
you know, um, Brandon Stanton said something which I think is quite interesting where he said he doesn't know very much about copyright law, but I do have an opinion on what it means to be an artist. And he said that art motivated first and foremost by profit ceases to become art, which is a hugely weighty statement. <laughs> and, um, you know, I had to really think about that for a long time. And obviously, like, he's very lucky in that the thing he did took off and he seems to have sustained a living from it. Uh, it is just the the nature of someone like Karishma Mehta, I think, who is very much a elite woman from Bombay who didn't need this, is very young, but has made money off it. And I think yeah. there's a lot of class and caste that comes into this as well. Yeah, definitely. Particularly when it's when you're, as you say, taking photos <laughs> of ordinary people uh, yeah. and, and all, all that's bound up in that. Well, we'll keep keep following that story as well. As we say, mm. it's currently, I think, the, the, the suit's been filed uh, in the Delhi High Court. So we'll see how how that one goes as well. But another um, controversy, we seem to be covering a lot of controversies on the show today, um, concerns the uh, BBC, uh, which has just released uh, new guidelines on what its flagship presenters can and cannot say on social media. So it's obviously why, obvious why this is relevant to our show, obviously talk about, talk about social media, but I think both of us also spend a lot of time thinking about the mainstream media as well and how that's impacted mm. by... And freedom uh, of expression. Exactly, and how that's all impacted by digital... Uh, media and, and, and social media. And so this whole controversy came out of something said by Gary Lineker, who, for those who don't know, is the uh, presenter of the BBC's Match of the Day flagship football programme uh, earlier this year, where he compared the UK's asylum policy to 1930s Germany. Uh, this caused a, a massive media storm at the time. It, mm. it, it led to Match of the Day going off air, or Lineker being taken off air, and his co-hosts and pundits refusing to join the show uh, in solidarity. And that has forced the BBC to go kind of back to the drawing board really to decide what its presenters can and can't say uh, on, online. I've got a few um, sort of minor points about the different, hmm. the, the slightly weird selection of presenters involved. But yeah, and specific your, TV shows which they exactly. say flagship, flagship programmes. But big picture, I mean, what's your sense of how... Um, whether you really can create rules that can really mm. please what people say online in, in this kind of context. So Lineker himself has said that he thinks that new policy is sensible, and I'm sure it is. Um, again, like, I am not a TV presenter, but I still think there is, it's quite, so basically, um, you know, there's a new, the one of the quotes from the BBC on this is that the new approach says you can do, um, you can take sides as long as you stay true to the facts of the issue itself. Yeah, I still think that's actually quite hard to draw the line on. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think that's... Um, I, I still think there'll be people kind of falling afoul of this. I don't think it's so black and white that there's no way you could say the wrong thing. Yeah. And, you know, I think there was, like, tremendous support. Maybe I'm just saying this from my liberal left-wing bubble mm -hmm. for Gary Lineker back in March when this whole thing happened. Um, and, you know, the new rules are important to clarify to audiences as well as the people presenting yeah. so that we, we know, well, what does the BBC stand for? What does it even mean to be impartial? Or what does freedom of speech mean in this new kind of landscape? Mm -hmm. I still think it's something that I don't think this will erase the issue altogether. Maybe the wider issue, this is a huge question, is just, is it, isn't it, it's very difficult to hire person TV personalities especially if you're hiring them because of their kind of speaking style, their personality, their views, their charisma, um, people like Gary Lineker, and then say, but these are things you can't say. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And as you say, they're trying to hire people who are, you know, experts in their field. Yeah. It's Gary Lineker, who was a, a former footballer. Um, Alan Sugar is another um, 
flagship presenter will have to be very careful what he says online, having mm-hmm. caught in trouble in the past as well. But he's a, you know he's an outspoken businessman. Um, and then the, sh- the shows that are included, it's kind of like a it's a bit like a sort of BBC One highlight reel, yeah. really. Uh, Antiques Roadshow. Dragon's Den, MasterChef, which of course I'm a big fan of, uh, <laughs> Top Gear, Strictly Come Dancing. So it sort of picked, I guess, the most popular broad-based shows, and I suppose in that what way... What they call flagship programs. Flagship programs. These are all, of course, non-news ones. There's different rules that apply to yeah. news uh, programs as well, as well as some radio mainstream radio programs as well. So I think what they're trying to do is make sure that the, the figures presenting those sort of flagship, broad-based, mass-appeal shows aren't saying anything that's going to annoy any segments of those audiences uh, terribly online. As you say, it's limited to political campaigning, but I also agree that I think there's a bit of a grey area there in, in what will be seen as political campaigning yeah. in, this, in this sense. But I think what's really interesting about this as well is that Gary Lineker, as well as being both a, a retired footballer and the presenter of this BBC programme, um, is also something of a podcast entrepreneur <laughs> and has set of his own uh, rest a hero his, to us <laughs> yeah, exactly has set of his own rest is football um, podcast recently which is free to do as a freelancer uh, but also is the I think the co-owner of uh, a podcast uh, group which uh, produces some massively popular podcasts such as the one I was listening to on the way over Empire uh, but also the rest is history the rest is politics and so on I think that makes him a really interesting figure in this because on the one hand yes he's the face that like most people see on the public service broadcaster but he's also you know kind of cleverly operating in this slightly less mainstream world of, of podcasts that so many millions of Brits uh, listen to yeah no I think those are all really really good points like he's not you know owned wholesale by the BBC and, yeah. and none of these people are yeah. like everyone has opinions on politics and you know we live in a landscape where we've been flooded by politics in the last five to ten years we've had so many elections so many referendums so many big changes by the conservative party what lineker actually said in march was that the government's language about a new asylum policy was not dissimilar to that used by germany in the 30s now i actually think that um I don't know if that's, I don't think that's political campaigning. I mean, that's, yeah. it's critical of a government policy, but um, I don't know. I mean, I, I think that's a point that he should be allowed to make. Uh, and obviously he received a lot of support on social media for that kind of point. It is, it is very interesting because I think that increasingly the BBC will have a difficult time with personalities like Gary Lineker, who obviously do have strong political opinions. We're about to go into an election year. Um, I imagine it'll be more and more difficult to kind of keep people from saying that. I suppose the idea is if you turn on Match of the Day, you don't expect to hear points about the, um, you know, about about asylum seekers. But politics affects us all. Uh, yeah, exactly. And of course, it's not like Lineker was saying this on, on the air, but yeah. saying this on this very liminal oh, yes, space of, of, yeah, of yeah, Twitter, yeah. which I think is a really interesting Mm. as well as you say like everything is kind of everything is political and everything is and everybody seems to be on Twitter except me um, which means that it, it has become <laughs> everyone kind of in the world apart from Josh yeah. is on Twitter feels like it uh, but it has become this kind of fulcrum really for um, uh, almost this crucible of, of debate uh, and people you know if we think about the many events in the last you know few years certainly Black Lives Matter yeah. you know that that is not a political party as I think would be recognised by these new rules but it is certainly political it is a campaign you know if that sort of expression of opinion uh, rises up again I wonder whether these BBC stars will be thinking twice about what what they should say or whether they just think actually you know what some things are more important than than the rules or than than their salary yeah I think that's very much 
very much Lineker's point of view, um, you know, some things are more important. And luckily, he's got the clout and the kind of celebrity to be able to weather that kind of storm. Yeah. Um, I think that the idea the BBC's always had of, you know, they'd like their presenters and their people who work for them to be good ambassadors for the BBC, mm. wherever they are and whatever they're doing, is something that's just incredibly difficult. And I've always been quite sceptical of this and what mm. it does to... Um, you know, it turns a workplace into more than a workplace. It turns a workplace into a moral code. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. And it was only last week that we were talking about um, the allegations against Russell Brand, who was yeah. employed by the BBC, mm. who's not been short of these sorts of scandals in, in recent years. Obviously, that's a very, very different one. Yeah. But has been very much caught up uh, and uh, ensnared in um, scandals relating to the, the private, either the private views of or course. the private actions of its stars. In a way that I think any public news broadcaster the size of the BBC, you know, is going to have those kinds right. of issues. At, at some point, almost every British national figure will have been on the BBC and done something or said something. And there's a lot of work to do to maintain the, the, the reporting standards they hold themselves yeah. to. And I guess the balance that the BBC is trying to strike here is, as I say, by picking these kind of mainstream shows, not alienating or annoying too mm. many people, but as we say, there are increasingly networks and podcasts and other outside yeah. the mainstream services. GB News has also been in the news for all the wrong reasons this week as well, which we maybe won't go into here. But there is a kind of fragmentation, I think, of the media culture in the UK, both in ways that we might enjoy, like the podcasts that we present and listen yeah. to, but also in in, uh, in some you know conspiracist and, and um, you know seemingly quite uh, abusive um, content that's been put out on, on on other places. So it's a very weird world right now compared to 20, 30 years ago when Definitely. you know you had just two or three broadcasters in the UK with a very clear sense of what they were and weren't uh, supposed yeah. to talk about. And it's the permanence of those opinions. I was going to say that 20, 30 years ago, Gary Lineker probably would have made that comment at like a dinner party yeah. and people would have laughed and then forgotten about it. And yeah. now the fact that all these comments are kind of archived and screenshotted is just really, really changes the landscape um, and changes people's media histories. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So uh, let's see how that, how that policy <laughs> works in practice over the coming... I'm sure there'll be uh, many more controversies to talk about in the future. Definitely. Now, we've covered the main stories that we plan to cover yeah. today, but there was one more that we wanted to follow up on from last week. Absolutely. So a little update. I'm really glad to say this because on two levels. One is that um, essentially the news is that the WGA, the Writers Guild of America, um, have ended their strike uh, after nearly five months mm. of striking and union leaders voted unanimously to lift the restraining order to end the strike. Um, I'm glad because obviously it's been five months and I'm glad that it seems like many of their demands have been met, which is really positive news for unions kind of in all sectors all over the world. I'm also glad because we uh, said last week it looked like it was ending and I'm glad we didn't then yeah, <laughs> go into more negotiations. Yeah. Um, so just to be clear, this is the WGA strike, not the sag after strike, which continues, although the WGA breakthrough could be good for the for actors to draft yeah. their own deal with Hollywood Studios. Um, and it looks like, you know, almost immediately people are back in writers' rooms. We're looking at, um, you know, certain shows being back on the table, et cetera, et cetera. I think this really affects things like 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 late night shows, which kind mm. of script on a semi-regular basis, like a weekly basis, so they can return almost immediately. But it is really good news. And it's one of the... Slightly rare situation, sadly, where, um, you know, the demands that are striking, that a union has made are being met. And also that, um, you know, there's, I think, a lot of joy <laughs> from yeah. the union itself about this, which yeah. is great. 
Definitely. And of course, the reason that we were particularly focused on this was the mm. um, quite forward thinking set of demands related to AI. And it seems like basically the, the um, unions got what they wanted here. Um, it seems like based on the agreement reading from TechCrunch here, AI cannot be used to write or rewrite scripts and AI generated writing can't be considered source material. Uh, however, on an individual level, writers can choose to use AI tools if they like, but they can't be mandated to do so, which as far as I understand was essentially what they were looking for and does, I think, represent a really, um, yeah, kind of forward-reaching step on the part of writers to assert that they're the ones who can choose to use AI or not, but they can't be, that, but, but you know, that, that technology can't be imposed on them, which seems like a pretty good balance to me. I know. And actually, it's just amazing to be reporting on a story and just to hear union leaders and people in that union be genuinely delighted about the deal that's been made. Yeah. Um, you know, we've reported on a lot of strikes in loads of different industries in the last couple of years. Um, it's definitely been, you know, a few years of strikes. We have a few ongoing in the UK right now, whether it's in academia or the ongoing train strikes. Um, and to see success in the strike, while also considering that obviously the WGA and SAG-AFTRA have a lot of visibility and money and clout that is not available to other members of other unions um it's still kind of good to see a strike successful definitely and on to the next one which is uh, a strike that's been authorized by the actors union mm. SAG, uh, against the video game industry because of course many um motion capture and voice actors are involved in producing video games uh and that also relates to ai as well so this fight is not over it's just maybe changed into yeah. a different industry in, uh, in in the next effort yeah there's always another there's always another fight but i'm yeah. glad this one has um yielded some good results for yeah. hollywood writers and i'm very much looking forward to um watching good tv shows again <laughs> i know after a short lag we'll have a drought back, of the yeah, summer yeah exactly. absolutely just, just reality shows in the meantime <laughs> <laughs> okay i haven't i haven't done that low but maybe you have josh <laughs> That'll be, you know. um well anyway uh lots of news this week and really excited to be back uh and we're looking forward to catching up next time as yeah, well we are very much back as you can tell back in the same <laughs> room now it's better uh <laughs> and uh yeah loads there's going to be loads to cover certainly in the next few weeks so we will speak to you soon bye bye